there's a famous letter that has survived the dust of the centuries that seems to me that it will shed some light on one of the distinct callings of the church, of the people of God. And it comes from a very unlikely source. It is the letter to Arsatius from Julian, from the emperor of the Roman Empire. Here's what it says. He says, I have but now made a plan by which you may be well provided for this. For I have given directions that 59,400 dry gallons of corn shall be assigned every year for the whole of Galatia, Turkey, and 60,000 pints of wine. I order that one-fifth of this be used for the poor who serve the priests, and the remainder be distributed by us to strangers and beggars. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg because of the Jewish welfare system, and the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Let us not, by allowing others to outdo us in good works, disgrace by such remisses. All right, this is bizarre. This is very, very strange, but beautiful. Now, these are the words of the Emperor Julian around 360 AD. He was called Julian the Apostate. That was his uh, fantastic nickname, Julian the Apostate. Uh, He was called that because he wanted to deconvert the Roman Empire from Christianity, right? It's a couple hundred years after Jesus and the apostles' Christianity has spread. You know, the way up was down. Christianity served others, and then it grew, and it grew, and it grew. But he becomes emperor now, and he wants to go back to the old ways of paganism, worship Zeus and all, all of the other gods. He's no friend of the followers of Jesus, And though he doesn't command outright violence against the Christians, at least that we have record of, he used every other available means possible to squash them. He flushed Christians out of his imperial court. He rescinded the tax exemptions that Constantine put forward. He banned Christian academics from teaching. He published tracts ridiculing the Christians. He also did everything he could to revive the glories of the old paganism, building, refurbishing temples, sponsoring priests in various cities, and he overtly discriminated in favor uh, of these uh, pagan individuals and communities uh, when he appointed civic judges and civic leaders. So he didn't outright condemn violence against Christians, but he turned a blind eye to it because it happened. In his first year, the first year of his reign, there was a massacre that took place in Egypt, northern Egypt, in Alexandria. And here's what um, the old text says. It, it says, this mob assailed the Christians with whatever weapon chance that they could find. So whatever they found around them, a, a rock, a hammer, whatever it was. They took these weapons that were there at hand and in their fury destroyed numbers of these Christians in a variety of ways. And the text goes on to list the whole gory thing of how it happened. And then they mobbed the main church, you know, pitchforks and and torches style. And they dragged out the bishop, a guy named Georgius. Poor George here. Um, They fastened George to a camel. They ripped him apart and then they burned him and the camel. It was a rough day for George. And for Julian, 
let it be. He turned a blind eye. It served his purposes to rid the world of this nasty, cancerous blight called Christianity. On another occasion, Julian blamed the Christians for a destructive fire in the great temple to Apollo there in Antioch, and so he had the great church of Antioch closed. He canceled the church, closed the doors, locked them up tight. Now, the key thing to note, by the way, in this letter from Julian, who was an enemy of the church, is how he calls out Christians. What does he call them out for? Their kindness, for their generosity. He calls them out for their generosity because in their generosity, they are ministering to the poor and suffering who aren't even of their own group, right? They are caring for those who would be considered their enemies. They are obnoxiously generous, and it's frustrating the emperor. Right? They minister to the poor of any background, any religion, any political party. They minister in mercy to their opponents. And it's making him, the emperor, and his supporters look bad because they're not caring for their people like Christians care for the people who aren't their people. And so... Julian wants to outgive them, to one-up them and advance his own cause. There's no love in this letter that I read, by the way. There's no love. It's just pride and power grabbing. And this is a small but powerful window into the distinct nature of the church, both then and now. See, one of the distinctives of the historic and global church is that the church is called to care for the poor and the suffering, meeting needs with joyful and sacrificial generosity. The church is called to care for the poor and the suffering, meeting needs with joyful and sacrificial generosity. Now last week we saw that the church is to use power differently, that the way up is is actually down. And this week we see how the church uses money and resources in a down-is-up different kind of way. So because there's a lot of content to to work through today to follow the logic, to get to the root of why it is that Christians do what they do, uh, I want to lay a little roadmap out for us of where we're going to go. This helps me. I hope it helps you process um, this sermon this morning. So what we're going to look at um, is history, theology, sociology, and apprenticeship. So we've already started with history, right? I'm going to look at a little more history about giving and generosity Then we are going to move to theology. We're going to look at the logic of the heart of the gospel. Dig into our two passages. Then we're going to move to sociology a little bit. We're going to look at some causes of poverty. And then we're going to do our best to crucify some excuses. And then apprenticeship. We're going to talk about some practices. So you could call that uh, orthopraxy if you want to keep with the whole flow. History, theology, sociology, orthopraxy. That's, what, that's our flow today. Uh, hopefully it's not as complicated as that sounds. So let's continue on with the history here for a bit. We've already talked about the early church. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about recent history. In the last 200, 100 years or so. Though ministry to the poor and suffering has always been a worldwide distinctive of the church. In more recent history, this distinctive has suffered erosion. It suffered erosion for, for a few different reasons. Now, um, like so many things in our culture, there has been a polarized, a false mutuality um, 
an exclusive way of framing things that has caused a reductionism, okay? It's caused a reductionism. There's an unhealthy and an unbiblical either-or mentality that comes from secular philosophy, not the Gospels, that is eroding the truth of what it means to be a Christian involved in mercy ministry. It breaks down the truth. And uh, this might be a little uncomfortable here for a few moments, but that's okay. Jesus is really good at making people uncomfortable um, in order to heal them and restore them. So we'll do that today. Out. I feel like I'm cutting out. Let's see here. Is that better? Is that better? Okay, all right. If that cuts out again or whatever, I can move to a handheld. I just don't want it to be um, dis- distracting here. Um, it's doing it, isn't it? Um, should I move to a handheld? Yes, handheld. This is going to be interesting for me. Uh, this is number six. Is that working? Number six. Okay, we will one way or another, won't we? Um, wow. Goodness gracious, I told you, Jesus is going to make us uncomfortable. He's totally making me uncomfortable right now. All right. So what I want to talk about here for a moment is the all-too-common liberal and conservative caricature of what generosity and what mercy ministry is. Now, what has been called the social gospel is attributed to often liberal theology and attached to the political left. This is heavy focus on social ethics and often a diminishing of evangelism. Social action is the thing and precious little good newsing about who Jesus is happens. Loving the poor in action pushes aside proclamation and doctrine. It's the whole idea of preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, maybe if it gets to that point, then use words. Loving the poor in action pushes aside proclamation and doctrine. Little focuses on the evil in the human heart and big focuses on the evil of corrupt systems out there. The solution is in better policies and better education and societal reform and throw in a dose of Marxist thought, pushes to its, its, its extent, and it becomes what's called liberation theology. Are we uncomfortable yet? Okay, let's do it. Let's go. On the other end of the pendulum is an evangelism that is disconnected from mercy ministry. Teaching about Jesus, but not working out the gospel with our neighbors in need. And this is attributed often to conservative theology and politics attached to the political right. And here lives a deep suspicion of anything that smacks of the social gospel. And there's an allergic reaction to anything involving mercy ministry or the word justice. There's a lot of focus on evil in the human heart here, but not much focus on evil in systems and organization out there. Now how are we doing? There is a need for equal opportunity reality checking here. Both of these are a form of reductionism that does violence to the scriptures. There is an organic connection between evangelism and ministry to the poor. Pulling apart evangelism, gospel in word, and ministry to, um, pulling that apart from gospel in deed, ministry to the poor, is like having to choose one or the other, breathing in or breathing out. Which one would you not like to do this morning? Breathe in or breathe out? Pick one. 
That's just not going to go well for us. Right? We need both, and they are both organically connected, and they are both somehow tied together at the spark of life. So we need those things to live together. Evangelism of who Jesus is, is more than ministry to the poor. Absolutely, yes. It's telling of the story of who Jesus is. It's actual news. It's something that happened in history. It's helping people re-see and reimagine reality as it is so they might live in accordance with it. The name of Jesus needs to be spoken. Every knee will bow on this earth under the name of Jesus. The name of the Lord, the name of the King must be made known. He instructs us. We are to understand how he's built this world, what he's done, what the gospel is. Absolutely. But ministry to the poor is the natural outcome of a gospel-changed heart. The gospel massively transforms our attitudes. It transforms our ethical actions. And our social interactions. And we see this in our two passages today. 1 John 3 and 2 Corinthians 8. So to be a follower of Jesus. To walk in his way. In his truth. In his compassion. Our faith is embodied. It's not abstract. It matters. It matters what we do with our money and our resources. That's why Jesus talked about money and resources all the time. So on to the theology of it if we haven't already dove into that. On to the logic of the heart of the gospel. Let's look at our text. This is 1 John 3. Let me reread it so this is hanging in our, in our heads and our hearts here. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now John, when he's writing this, is an older man writing to the church that the church might be encouraged, that they might live out of the love that God has put inside of them through the work of Jesus Christ. And he says love is defined not by this world and all its messy definitions of it, but love is defined by who God is and what God has done Love is known by the fact that God the Son came and Jesus died for us in our place. Love is known by substitutionary atonement. He died that we might live. He took our sin and punishment upon himself that we might become like him. And here is the logic of the heart of the gospel. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace through Faith. This is the great exchange, what Martin Luther called the great exchange, his life for ours. He took our sin and unrighteousness, and he gave us his righteousness. He died in our place. He took on our humanity that we could become the children of God. He took on our poverty that we might have the riches of God. And because of this, now we know how love operates. We know our radical need. We know how dire our situation was that he had to die to save us. We know his radical provision, the great grace through the work of Jesus Christ and the provision of his spirit. Because of this, we are saved and then empowered to be like him. And because of this, we know his character. He loves the poor and the suffering. He identifies with them. 
Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, he identifies with the widow. He identifies uh, with those who are in poverty. He identifies with the refugee. He identifies with those people. Jesus came and physically manifested that poverty, that, that uh, refugee-ism. Like, he became one. He fled to Egypt. He entered into all of this. And so here's what John does in this brilliant passage. John simply applies this logic. If you're a child of God, if you know that Jesus has died for you, that he has suffered to bless you, then how can you share in his love if you see a brother or sister in need and you don't enter into that suffering with them and resource them as best as you can? How does his love abide in you if you don't do that? It's not being like Jesus. He makes it plain. John doesn't have all that much time left, so he's just making it plain. He's putting it out there. We are to love and talk and walk in word and deed. Preach the gospel with words. It is necessary and live out the gospel in sacrificially meeting the needs of others. Now, Paul is in violent and radical and passionate agreement with John. So let's look at our passage from 2 Corinthians 8. He says, As you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace. What is this act of grace in chapter 8? He's collecting, right, the, the monies to care for those who are suffering in the church. It is the the ministry, the act of giving that he's talking about. It's an act of grace, that God graces us to give to others. I say this not as a command. This is fascinating. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then he gives the reason why. He goes to the source, the root. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Substitution, great exchange, saved by faith. So Paul's writing to the church of Corinth to encourage them to give to their brothers and sisters in need. And he doesn't command them. And this is amazing. He doesn't say, you must do this. You must do this. What does he say? He goes into marveling about the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. And he says, you know this. It's like he holds up a gym. And the light's shining on him. He's like, you've seen this gem of the gospel. Live in light of its glory and its beauty. That's how he calls them to give. He doesn't work up their, their emotion or push on their guilt. He just shows them the beauty of Jesus Christ. He says, here's the pattern. Here's the source of joyful and sacrificial generosity. Jesus himself. Now this passage points again to the fact that generosity to the poor is a proof of a grace-changed heart. Because ministry to the poor is not a meritorious work. It's not how we get saved, right? We are not justified by caring for the poor. We care for the poor because we are justified and being transformed. Big difference. We are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone, as, as John Calvin was famous for saying. By the way, this is not just the New Testament, right? You flip back into a lot of those untouched pages of the scriptures, and this has been a story all along. In the Old Testament, we learn that this kind of mercy ministry showed that somebody was living in covenant faithfulness to, to Yahweh. I mean, I could list you passages all day long. Isaiah chapter 1, 10 through 17. Isaiah chapter 58, 
go read that chapter today. Isaiah 58, Amos 4, Amos 5, Zechariah 7, Deuteronomy 15.8. In Deuteronomy 15.8, God says very clearly, he says, if there's anybody who comes into poverty in your land in any one of your cities, in your jurisdiction at all, doesn't matter who they are, if they fall into poverty, he says, open your hand wide to them. This is a metaphor for just radical generosity. Open your hand wide to them. And the Christian church reflects this intended social righteousness of Israel because this merciful righteousness reflects the very character of our God. Therefore, joyful and sacrificial giving and caring for the poor and suffering is a crucial non-optional aspect of living out the gospel as apprentices of Jesus Christ. And we are to work really hard to reject the gospel reductions that the culture keeps selling us. We are to refuse these false either-ors, these mutual exclusivisms that enter into our dialogue, because the church is to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. The church is called to care for the poor and suffering, meeting needs with joyful sacrificial generosity. Now, let's continue to think this through because might there be some objections to what we've already said? Might this be way more complicated than the guy up front is making it right now? Um, I think so. I, I think it might be more complicated but still simple at the same time. So let's talk about sociology here for a few moments. Uh, it seems to me that we should acknowledge that there are different and overlapping causes of poverty, and the Bible acknowledges, and because the Bible acknowledges them, so should we. So again, now I'm painting with big strokes here when I'm talking about left, right, liberal, and conservative, but, but there is a reason, there's a caricature that is painted because there's tendencies, there's tendencies, right? So again, often liberal thought generally sees poverty as caused by unjust social systems. And conservative thought generally sees poverty caused by personal irresponsibility and sin. One side says the poor, they're the problem. The other side says the rich are the problem. Eat the rich. Self-righteousness self -righteousness thrives under both views. So which, which one is it? Well, uh, Proverbs 14.23 Proverbs 14.23 tells us all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. There you have it. The poor are the problem. Bunch of lazy fill in the blanks, you know? They're not, they're not doing their job. Okay? Fair enough. Proverbs 13.23. A poor man's field may produce abundant food, but injustice sweeps it away. Corruption, oppression. So which is it? Injustice, social corruption, laziness, irresponsibility. It's both. In different ways and at different times. It's an admixture, but it might be more than that. What about natural disasters? What about what's called natural evil or just bad things that, that happen? What about the famine in Genesis 4, 47? Remember God's people, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons, like Jacob and all of his sons? They were, they were pretty well-to-do. They were doing well, but then suddenly they had to beg for food. Why? 
because they were mis mishandling God's funds. A famine came. A calamity came. And it took somebody who was sitting well and pushed them into poverty. Right? Okay, so here's another reason for poverty. So the scriptures give us three reasons for poverty. Personal failure. This is indolence. This is lack of self-discipline. This is self-destructive behavior. This is just being stupid with money. This is about having no control. Right? It's about wearing out the, the back of the strip on your, your credit card all the time because you don't even know how to use that thing well. It's about mismanagement and lack of self-control. It's the sin of stewarding things poorly. Second, injustice and oppression. You can have the world's hardest working person, right, laboring under a tyrant or corrupt system and be in poverty irregardless of intelligence or work ethic. Millions the world over are under tyrannical systems. It's like they have no chance. It doesn't excuse the sin in their own heart. Third, disastrous circumstances, famines, other natural disasters, complicated sequences of hardships, losses, deaths, contributing factors to poverty. We see all these in Scripture. And I think it's good for us to think about these things and how they intersect. Why? Because too often... Our ideologies are too simple. They're not nuanced enough to account for the complexity of the human condition or the human heart. And in doing so, we fuel our excuses for justifications for not being generous or caring for those in need. Painting broadly, polarizing, not addressing the nuance that Scripture puts forward allows us to fuel our excuses to not care for those in need. So, after identifying biblically acknowledged causes of poverty, it's good to call some bluffs. Can we crucify um, some excuses together this morning? Um, there's a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Christian Charity, and in it, he identifies Paul's root reason for ministry to the poor as what we did, substitutionary work of Christ. We saw that in 2 Corinthians 8, right? And 1 John. And he applies, and what Jonathan Edwards does is says, at, because of the substitution, now let's apply the cross as the cure to all of our sin and selfishness. So let's apply it. So we're going to practice this. So a couple examples. Let's see how this works. Maybe this is, maybe you see someone in need and then this is the, the excuse. This is the response. Well, they brought this poverty upon themselves. I mean, everyone knows that. I'm not going to reward or enable such behavior. Apply the cure of the cross of Christ. How? A few questions. Did, did we bring our sin upon ourselves as human beings who needed salvation? Yes. I mean, we were born into sin, but we then willfully sin, thought, word, and deed, for sure. Yeah. Are we morally culpable and responsible for our sinful actions? Or are we only the victims of other people's sin? No, we're not. I mean, we are, but not just. We're in full rebellion. We were in full rebellion when he gave up his riches to enter into our poverty to save us and redeem us. He saved us while we were still yet sinners, right? So do we only help others when they have been fully responsible and there's no fault in them? No, we would help no one ever. <laughs> Apply the cross. Second, how about this excuse maybe? I can't afford to help them. It's going to cost me too much. 
apply the cure of the cross of Christ. Did our salvation come cheaply? What did it cost? Did it involve sacrifice? Did it involve self-denial? Did it involve setting aside certain rights? Was it easy? Grace is not cheap. It's costly. Our blessings came through the sweat and blood of the Son of God. The greatest cost that you could imagine. So, it's going to cost us to help other people. We're going to feel the sting of it. That's being like our Lord. What about this one? Well, what if I help them and they misuse the resources? I mean, obviously they're, they're not doing all that hot. Uh, best not to risk it. We'll apply the cure of the cross of Christ again. In giving us the gift of his life, in giving us the gift of his spirit and all the spiritual blessings in, in the heavenly places because of what he's done, have we and have other followers of Christ always stewarded those gifts properly? I haven't. For sure. My wife's sitting in the front row. Ask her. Okay? We have been given the graces and the riches of heaven, and we have squandered those in so many ways and abused those in so many ways. He didn't give them to us thinking we were going to steward them well, and that's why he gave them to us. He gave them to us so he could transform us so that one day we would be like him, knowing full well that we would fall on our face and need to consume more grace with each passing day. Apply the cure of the cross of Christ. How about this one? It's not my problem. I don't even know who they are. It's not my problem. Apply the cure of the cross of Christ. The rule of the gospel is that when we see our brother or sister under any difficult burden, that means a human being, under any difficult burden, we help bear that burden according to Galatians 6, 2 and 1 John chapter 3. Jesus bore our burden of sin and judgment that we could not bear alone. He made it his problem. He was just fine. And he took on our affliction and entered into it. Became a human. Became our brother. Number five. How about this one? Well, they don't deserve the kindness. I mean, look at them. They have a temper. They've treated people poorly, they're ungrateful, etc. Fill in the blank. You just keep going all day long. Apply the cure of the cross of Christ. Yeah, they're our enemy, but we're to love our enemies. Jesus died for us when we were hard-hearted, unkind, selfish, ungrateful, all that he might, again, transform us. It's ministry. It's not meritocracy. We don't get the blessing because we deserve it. We get the blessing, and it transforms us. We don't minister and meet needs because people are thankful, because they're going to use it all appropriately. No, we minister in grace that God might somehow, in his power, by his spirit, do something through them and in this world. Now, I'm on dangerous ground here. I get it. Um, here's what I'm not saying, by the way. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we throw out reason and wisdom that we just chuck it out the window, that, that we indiscriminately throw money and resources all around. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. That's not how we as a church operate, if you, if you know how we operate. But what, what I am saying is that we are to think Christianly 
about ministry to the poor, not to have a worldly mindset. There's a whole different cost-benefit analysis that God brings to bear on the situation. We are to let the cross of Jesus guide our discernment, guide our choices. We are to let the cross of Jesus crucify the justifications and escape hatches that we constantly create in order, in order to, to be a cul-de-sac of blessings rather than the conduit that God has called us to be. There's a vast difference between the following two questions, between the following two postures of heart. Here are those two questions. I don't have them written for you, but here they are verbally. What bare minimum must I do to meet the requirement of loving my neighbor? What must I do to meet the requirement of loving them? Compare that to how might I show this person the lavish love of God? Those are two radically different postures of heart. So let the cross change your question from what must I to how might I? Let the cross change your posture of heart from what must I to how might I. See, love never seeks the least or bare minimum for the beloved. Love seeks to bless and wash the other in beauty and goodness and truth. Christian ministry of the poor and suffering is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. It is both sacrificial and joyful. Now, um, remember our roadmap. Let's go back to our roadmap, get our bearings here for a second. History, theology, sociology, and then apprenticeship or orthopraxy. History. A distinctive of the church has always been and globally been a sacrificial and joyful generosity, caring for the poor and caring for those who are suffering. It's always been the case. Theology. Our calling to sacrificial and joyful generosity comes from the pattern of Jesus who sacrificially and joyfully has blessed us. Sociology. Poverty is caused by a number of different causes that the Bible highlights. But we tend to think of it in unnuanced, polarized, and political ways that lead to justifying why we don't minister to the needy in our lives. There is sin in society, sin in the individual, and natural evil that are all factors. Now, let's end. Let's end with apprenticeship practices. There's, there's five things that I thought might be helpful for us, and I, I, I hope they are. And the first one is the most important one that orients everything, and it's simply this. Relentlessly feast on the gospel relentlessly feast on the gospel to cultivate grace-shaped generosity. It's why we gather every Sunday. It's why we are to open up our scriptures and meditate on God's life-giving word, that we would see Jesus, that we would be conformed to his image, that, that he would renew our imagination so that we would inhabit this world completely differently. We become like what we behold. And so we are to look upon Christ and let the gospel reshape us and repattern us. Because if we don't, any of our giving, any of our mer mercy ministry will, will devolve from good intentions to hollow virtue signaling action, to competition, to ambition, to cold obligation, or moralistic self-justification. Ministry to the poor is not a meritorious work. We are not justified by caring for the poor. We care for the poor because we are justified and being transformed into the image of Christ and his spirit is alive in us. 
So it spills out on this world. And Jesus goes to the point of pain. That's what he does. He goes into the point of suffering and into the point of need and fills it with life. In the beginning, in Genesis, there's chaos. The tohu bohu, the, the formlessness and void, and his spirit enters into it and brings life and order. Jesus does that, and we as his people are called to do that. Second, um, reframe the question. All right, replace what must I with how might I. That's a powerful reframing device. Reframe the question. Replace what must I with how might I. Resist the bare minimum mindset. And embrace a how can I express the lavish love of God in this situation with whatever tiny means that I might have. Next one is, um, is ask. Is everything okay? Do you need any help? This week I had the, the joy of running into Jill. Where's Jill? Jill, Jill Lawrence in the office. She's worked at, in our benevolence ministry for years. And I asked her, like, Jill, give me some wisdom. Here's what I'm talking about. What do you think? And then she told me the story. And, and she said, basically, this beautiful thing happened because God's spirit led her to just ask the question, are you okay? Big, theological, mind-blowing question. Are you okay? And this woman in that moment said, no. And then my understanding, you said, how, how can we help? And things changed in the direction of this woman's life because of that. And, and sometimes, especially in Pleasanton, Dublin, and Livermore, we think everything is fine because we're really good at surfaces and really good at making everything look nice and civil. But underneath, things are falling apart. And so, so, sometimes we don't give or we're not generous with our time, talent, resources because we don't know there's a need. Ask the Lord to lead you in asking that simple question with somebody. Are you okay? Are you okay? Can I help? It's a very practical step not to be stepped over. Um, this one. Remember that your time and presence are invaluable resources. Don't just give money. Give your time and presence. Because we meet the deep needs of those who are impoverished spiritually and financially as we enter into affliction with them and give them family. My time's short here. Let me wrap this up. Do mercy ministry as a team. Care for those in need as a team. That means bring others into the situation. You don't have to be that person's savior. They only have one, and it's Jesus. And he has a body here on earth to take care of those people. Bring others into it. Make use of our benevolence ministry. Guys, we have an incredible benevolence ministry. Thank you for giving to it. $178,000 were given to benevolence ministry last year. And if you don't know, that's just going to people who are in, in crisis, in, in different situations. That isn't our, our missions account. That isn't our offsite account. That's something completely different. Our benevolence ministry is there to meet the needs of people who, who fall into this category of, of their need, their, their own want. So, by the way, um, if you're interested in how to connect people to that ministry, to our benevolence, stop by the connections desk. There's these little slips out there. They're in both English and, and Spanish, um, one on each side. And it tells you how to connect people to our mercy ministry, our benevolence ministry. Um, and if you served on that, thank you. Because it's gut-wrenching, it's emotional, takes a ton of discernment and a ton of prayer. But you guys do such a good job. Okay. Well, I'm going to... 
I'm going to wrap this up now. Um, the church is called to care for the poor and the suffering by meeting the needs of joyful and sacrificial generosity. So may our philosophy and practice of caring for the poor not be born out of man-made ideologies, but come from the scriptures. We need to be diligent about being honest about that. May the way we give not be defined by party lines. May the way we give not be defined by party lines, but by the very wounds of Christ himself. A body broken to care for those who didn't deserve it because of sin in the world and sin in the heart. May we have a robust reason to care for those in need and not a reductionistic ideology that doesn't account for sin out there and sin in here. May we give not out of ambition or moral competition like good old Julian the apostate who didn't want to look bad in front of other people, the ancient virtue signaler there. May our care for those in need never be cold obligation or the motion of self-superiority. May our giving not be virtue signaling but true gospel living. We love because he first loved us. Father, um, <laughs> uh, do something with that. <laughs> Lord, do something with that. Um, may these many words by your grace lead, lead to transformation in our hearts and transformation in this community. I thank you for the way this church is um, generous in, in its giving, sacrificially and joyfully. But Lord, lead us further into it. Lead us further up and further in. Oh, we need you and we thank you that we get to come to this table now to confess our sins and to consume grace. Amen.